God be with us. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And I add this verse too. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Um, Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that this church... The church, your church, is your church. That you build it, you protect it, you shield it, you protect it from error, you protect it from its enemies, Lord. You grow it. This is your project. We thank you for that, and we pray that that would ever be in our minds, Lord. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us from it today, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Um, Well, there's something kind of embarrassing when you start to tell someone a story and suddenly you realize they have no clue what the background is to your story. I don't know how many of you have ever been in that situation. I've been guilty of it many times, Uh, either because you forgot that this person wasn't there when the earlier part happened, you know, that kind of thing, or they live under a rock and they just have no clue. Um, But either way, your story just kind of falls flat because you have to explain the whole background and the punchline sort of loses its punch. Um, But thankfully, the Bible, God's Word, makes clear today that that is okay, because Matthew starts off telling us about Herod's response to Jesus' spreading fame. You know, and so Matthew says, so Herod says, hey, maybe this is John the Baptist come back to life, and suddenly he has to interrupt himself. Oh, by the way, had I mentioned John the Baptist died? Uh, And and, and here's how that happened. And as clunky as that sounds, I take comfort in it. Uh, because the beauty of Scripture is not always in its eloquence, but its truth, although the eloquence often follows. Uh, Today we're looking at John the Baptist. Since it is Persecuted Church Sunday, we're going to focus on the imprisonment and death of John the Baptist and what led to it and how he reacted to it, being in prison, that is. uh, He reacted to dying by being dead. Um, 
I chose John because while Stephen is usually credited as the first Christian martyr, John is certainly the first New Testament martyr and the only one recorded during the earthly ministry of Christ. John is usually seen as the last of the Old Testament prophets and by some accounts the greatest. If the entire Old Testament history is a prelude to the coming of Christ, John is the grand finale of the first movement, the glorious climax of the opening act. Josephus saw fit to mention him in his histories. He called him a good man, and he said that, quote, when people gathered around John, greatly stirred by his words, Herod was afraid that his great persuasive power over men might lead to a rising, for they seemed ready to follow his counsel in everything. As a phenomenon, John was unparalleled in his day. He drew people from all walks of life. He had Pharisees and Sadducees, mortal enemies, coming to him at the same time. He had tax collectors and even Roman soldiers coming to him for advice. He came in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And if you observe that John came to prepare a highway for God, and Jesus is the one who walks in it, maybe he's God. You might want to file that away for the next time the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. Jesus himself tells us that John represented the return of Elijah. And our Lord himself says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's not too shabby for a wilderness preacher. John came out of obscurity and essentially became the conscience of the nation. He's like a Billy Graham caliber figure. But for all of that, John became well acquainted with persecution and suffering, and he eventually paid the ultimate price, and Jesus mourned for him. Now, if someone as reputable and influential as John was persecuted, it would be wise for us little people to consider his example. Not because we face death for our faith in this country, not typically, but because the Church of Christ is a countercultural movement. We can and should expect tension in the world. And I'm going to make the case that this can be a form of persecution, and I believe John the Baptist's story provides guidance for us. Now, I will say that real, what we typically think of as real persecution, is very present the world over. Uh, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that since all our lives are safe here in America, we figure, that therefore persecution is unknown to the church worldwide. I think that that's been what we've been hammering away at today so far. Uh, the church has always known persecution. And it's funny that many dispensational theologians are still waiting for a tribulation period when tribulation is already quite tangible in many areas of the world. And I think that's why almost every dispensationalist lives in America. But communist and totalitarian countries generally forbid or else micromanage and control the church in China. Uh, the only legal Bibles are those that are printed by government permission by the only government-approved church and can only be sold within church walls. If you can imagine the Bible being printed and distributed by an agency in D.C. or something like that. And meanwhile, all the other churches are considered illegitimate. They hide their meetings to avoid harassment and prison. Uh, the state-sanctioned state churches uh, try to make Jesus part of the communist program, you see, he would have been a good communist, and he would know that the party comes first. This is the way that it's taught. Uh, Islamic countries sometimes try to either marginalize the church or eradicate it. Some openly attack and kill Christians in the country. Others keep them confined to specific regions. 
I have a customer at the market. She's a Syriac scholar. She does a lot of traveling in the Middle East. Uh, she went to a country somewhere there and said she was impressed by a visit she made there. Uh, she said the country had built an enclosed area, a walled-in community where all the country's Christians could live and worship. And she says, there was total freedom inside the compound. And I thought, we have very different definitions of freedom. <laughs> Putting all Christians in a really nice ghetto and saying, be free! It's not exactly Jeffersonian. Um, but what about America and the West? And that's what I was asked to focus on today. Um, our lives aren't often threatened for the faith. Uh, if you compare us to the early church, you might almost wonder if we're doing something wrong. Why are we so safe and comfortable? Our biggest problems seem to increasingly come from lawsuits, and they usually revolve around cultural trends, uh, abortion, gay marriage. First, the culture comes to embrace the trend, and soon enough it seeks to shame or litigate all opposition into oblivion, and or at least marginalize such thinking to the fringes of society. Uh, we see this with lawsuits against Christian businesses over gay wedding cakes and all sorts of things. Uh, American government loves a church that provides social services. If John the Baptist was running a, a non-judgmental soup kitchen in the desert, now that's, you know, now we can talk, you know. It's when you start talking about sin that your skin crawls a little bit. This is the Western model of government persecution in free countries. What was once the, called the uh, culture wars revolved largely around free love and the sexual revolution of the 60s and the fallout that resulted in the ensuing decades. And now the children of that era have become grandparents, and the resulting generation is reaping what was sown at that time. Uh, what was once considered old-fashioned or prudish is now considered intolerant or hateful or mean. Uh, there should be a law against that. And in some places there are. Uh, hate speech laws are the subject of many lawsuits in Canada. It's become officially illegal to call homosexuality a sin there. It can be interpreted as, as uh, oppressing a specific group. Now, the church once resisted this trend. Uh, I think we increasingly avoid talking about it. And that's partly because American churches are just as likely to have the problems because the sexual revolution hit us too. Uh, we don't want to sound judgmental or make people feel bad about sexual sin, much less scare them into leaving the church. Um, and I think the American church has also gotten tired of the culture wars in general. We're fatigued from fighting, which sure seems like a constantly losing battle. And it's also reasonable to ask, why should we expect the world to understand biblical sexual ethics anyway? Why point out sin to people when they don't even acknowledge that there's a God to sin against? And doesn't Paul tell us not to judge the world outside the church in 1 Corinthians 5? Laying aside for the moment that he tells us to judge the people inside. Uh, aren't we just spitting into the wind? And that's exactly what made me think of John the Baptist for today. Because contrary to that whole line of reasoning, John fearlessly confronted sin wherever he found it. He preached repentance to anyone and everyone who heard him. This is not what Paul meant by judging the world. John had no power to punish those who didn't repent. He merely pointed to God's law, called out sin, and preached repentance. And what caught my eye the most was what finally got him in trouble was that he publicly called out Herod for his sexual sin with Herodias what today would be called his own private business and a consensual relationship. John says it's out of line. What does he say in verse 4? It is not lawful for you to have her. John is not talking about Roman law. He's talking about God's law. Herod had taken his brother's wife for his own. He had gone to visit his brother, liked what he saw, 
and proceeded to divorce his wife and take his brothers. Maybe with his brother's consent, I don't know. But John called him out for it. Hey, Leviticus 18 frowns on this stuff, buddy. You can't do that. Now, even though Herod, as a Sadducee and a Roman lackey, had little interest in religion at all, I've made the case from this pulpit before that Sadducees were little more than culturally Jewish anyway, and for the Herodian family, even being culturally Jewish was a recent political move. The Herodian family was originally from Edom. They're not Jewish. They were Roman citizens, and they became client kings over the Jews, and they became Jewish to appease the people. No one ever mistook them for pious or faithful. They're no more Jewish than Madonna is. Now, it's not likely, I mean, and look at it this way. I mean, Herod's not supposed to be the pastor-in-chief anyway, right? How often have we heard this about our politics here? His only job is to administer the state. Why does his private life matter? Why does John call him out so publicly with so many issues facing the Jewish nation? Why focus on Herod's sexual dalliance? Because the call to repentance is universal from princes to the unwashed masses Every gospel call will eventually get personal. The gospel refuses to leave you where it finds you. It hits you where it hurts, and it demands a change. There's no path back to God that doesn't begin with repentance. Saying Jesus is my homeboy will not cut it. That means eventually the issue of your sin has to be brought up, and John is not afraid to do so because it's his specialty. It's what he does. He took on the culture of his day regardless of the risk. Now, the church has often been accused of focusing too much on sexual sin, and to be fair, sexual sin is not new. Uh, America is similar to Rome in the time of Christ. It's bankrupt in our sexual ethics. And what's unique today is that the sexual revolution has reached its full bloom. It's successfully destigmatized nearly all sexual sin. As long as it's consensual, it's cool. Uh, but the reason the church has focused on sexual ethics in the past is that this is the primary battleground where a Christ-centered worldview clashes most with our modern American worldview. Sexual sin is the one thing we cannot talk about to the broader culture. If we preach against racism, or greed, or pollution, or hatred, or violence, we'll get a hearty amen from most of society. Those are not controversial issues in that sense. But the idolatry of sex is. And the Seventh Commandment is unrealistic, fuddy-duddy nonsense to our culture. They don't get it. Yet sexual sin is also the unifying theme that connects so many of society's ills. Not just adultery we're talking about, but rape, and abortion, and gay marriage, and premarital sex, and cohabitation, and out-of-wedlock birth, and absentee fathers, and poverty, and the welfare state, an overburdened foster care system, porn addiction, divorce, prostitution, sex trafficking. All of these are fed by the sexual appetite and freedom that our culture celebrates. And while this culture refuses to be lectured by a bunch of churchies about sex, we cannot ignore sexual sin without ignoring the underlying cause of so much pain in our world that we see. John is, first of all, a model for us in this boldness, proclaiming God's truth to a world that doesn't believe, but he is also a model for us in his humility. He's not concerned for how the world will think of him. Consider how he is described in Matthew 3, verse 4. We are told that he wore camel's hair clothing and ate bugs. He is not exactly the suave televangelist type. 
unrefined camel hair of John style ranks somewhere near burlap in the fashion world. It's not the good stuff that they make like, you know, nice coats out of today. Um, I will confess, I have been known to wear socks with sandals. And, and it's, it's getting to be the time of year for that uh, again. Now, I have been concerned on occasion that this might damage my credibility when spreading the gospel. I also know that I'm way overdue for a haircut, and when my hair gets shaggy like this, this is my John the Baptist hair, okay? Even Jacob, my six-year-old son, is ashamed of me. In his eyes, I obviously have no business being up here looking like this. But a shabby appearance never stops John. He preaches, not you, John, you know, John the Baptist. just want to clarify. Um, he preaches boldly. He preaches to huge crowds, and nothing is off limits to his preaching, including your private life. Not because he has an ego, but because he's made himself so lowly that the only power he has can only have come from God. This is, I think, important for the contemporary church to take note of. We don't need to look pretty. We don't need to butter people up or water down the message, and we don't need a brilliant marketing scheme. All we need to do is wear camel hair. No, wait a minute, I'm sorry. No, we should be just as fearless and humble as John. Because the gospel always gets personal, not skin deep. And we don't want to be the story. Humility and boldness go together in sharing the gospel. Because the salvation of souls is an act of God, not ours. Now, there's no inherent promise that such bold humility will be repaid with glory. Sometimes you take heat for speaking the truth. That was John's experience at the end. He spoke truth to the masses that came out to see him, but he ultimately got in trouble for speaking truth unwanted and unsolicited to the wrong guy and one who happened to have troops at his disposal. But we can also get in trouble with our tongues for other reasons. They're not always good. I've been guilty of trying to win arguments instead of hearts. I'm probably the only And I've sometimes been attacked, not so much for my faith, but for being a jerk. But even if we speak biblical truth in humility and with grace, sharing our faith with love and a smile, eventually it gets too personal. It's going to hit close to home, and people get angry, and persecution can result. Now, John risked death. In America today, we do not, typically. What we deal with, I would argue, is far more subtle and insidious. Most persecution in contemporary America comes in the form of ridicule and shame. Not violence or state-sponsored persecution, just good old-fashioned mockery. And some believers have faced lawsuits, but most all of us have been made fun of. Much ink has been spilled about the strength of love as an emotion. Love has great power, just ask Huey Lewis in the news. Some of you have seen Back to the Future. Come on, guys. All right. Hatred is another powerful emotion. One of my favorite lines in Ben-Hur is when he, when he hits Ben-Hur, that guy, uh, Quintus Arius, and he says, there's hate in your eyes. That's good. Hate keeps a man alive. It gives him strength. That's not healthy, but perhaps true at times. But while love and hate are powerful emotions that can drive us to all manner of ridiculous things, I maintain that the single strongest human emotion is embarrassment. 
No one can stand to be embarrassed. In my experience, being made fun of is far worse than being kicked. Mocking laughter leaves more permanent marks. I can remember little things that embarrassed me in my childhood. Scars left from insignificant events, but ones that haunted me for years. I remember once walking in on my babysitter in the bathroom because she hadn't locked the door. So I'm like, you know, five years old, and I go rushing in, and she screamed at me. And I was terrified for months that she was going to eventually tell my parents. And I would think about this in bed at night, worried about it, red in the face, months later. Uh, I remember... A, a, a backyard barbecue at our house and uh, I, I asked my mom to fix me a hot dog she asked what I wanted on it I said ketchup she handed me one with mustard which I didn't realize was her hot dog and she was fixing me one and I took a bite out of it trying to be a good sport and I said to Eric being like my father I'm like you know my, I, I really wanted ketchup and she looks down and she says oh that's not yours that's mine I'm making yours right now and whoever she was standing next to laughed I'm a six-year-old boy. Whatever. It's something stupid. It's such a stupid thing. But for months, I replayed this in my head. Mom doesn't remember this. I hope Mom doesn't feel guilty over this. It's not her fault. I'm, I'm goofy. <laughs> but I was determined never to let this happen again. I used to have a list of these things in my head, and I would rehearse them to myself at night. It's like a sickness. But the embarrassment created by shame is the driving force of many decisions in life. It can determine the kind of car we drive, where we live how we keep our house, how we dress. It also affects what friends we keep. It creates a desire for approval, to be liked or admired by them. And that can control our willingness to acknowledge Christ before others. Peer pressure, antagonistic teachers, professors, bosses, Hollywood, the media. I think these can do more harm to the cause of Christ in America than any public meeting would. The church is ridiculed in the academy, and anyone here who is either a current or recent high school or college student knows exactly what I'm talking about. I had one English class at Penn State Abington where the professor had largely designed the class, the entire structure of it, to mock and discredit various tenets of the Christian faith. This is an English class at Penn State Abington. When your friends, coworkers, or fellow students think faith is silly, it becomes hard to be bold and much easier to hide. The friends we choose to surround ourselves with make a big difference because nobody likes to be the one guy who gets laughed at for being the prude. When media figures sort of paint the church as an unthinking backward group, a big part of me wants to distance myself from the church. I go to church, but I'm not one of those people. When Hollywood portrays the church in an unflattering light, I get mad, but I also sometimes join in the laugh. Better to join the mockers than stand up with the rest of this mess called the church. We end up with contempt for the church or the world, neither of which is very good. I think the culture sees Christians as one of two ways mostly. I owe this illustration to my wife, I have to say that, because she'll give me a hard time later. You are a Simpsons character. You are either Ned Flanders or Reverend Lovejoy. You are Flanders, the goody-two-shoes neighbor, living a charmed life, and you're easy to hate. You're preachy and totally insulated from real life. Or you're the pastor, Reverend Lovejoy, sanctimonious, smug, smarmy, judgmental, looking down at the rest, both bored and boring, the quintessential hypocrite. 
That is how we are seen by much of the culture. Some people have a sense of humor about it, and some are more charitable than others, but whatever their view, the world does not take us particularly seriously, not in America. And in our shame, we worry more about not looking like Ned Flanders than we do about being more like Christ. And many of you face this stuff every day. I converse with my customers weekly in Chestnut Hill. And Chestnut Hill's got a lot of the people with money. There's upper crust elites, professors, attorneys, politicians, movers and shakers. And many of them think religion is somewhat silly. Not all of them, but many. And some especially dislike Christians. Uh, not the cultural Christians, but the ones who take it too seriously. If I tell them I went to seminary, they can embrace me because I'm an academic now. Me, I'm an academic. Okay. But eyes glaze over if I give the impression that I actually believe this stuff about Jesus. Finding my identity in him and not in my degree. One guy uh, comes in, he, he teaches religious studies at Temple. He teaches church history as an oddity to be explained sociologically. It's like studying bugs in a cage. He's written books about it. Doesn't believe a scrap of what the church exists for, but this is what he teaches. If I'm honest, bringing up the gospel to these people feels embarrassing. It means sounding like a fanatic, risking my credibility as an intellectual. I'm afraid of them tuning me out and losing their good opinion. It's one thing to talk about John the Baptist as a role model of boldness, but that's much easier to say from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Boldness is easy up here, I'll be honest with you. I used to not think so. I used to be afraid of preaching, but it's easy up here. You guys are a captive audience. You don't usually talk back. It's great, you know. But what about the rest of the week? Boldness is much trickier in the real, real world. The world is not interested. Gospel talk is unexpected or unwelcomed or both. And we are often too ashamed and scared to speak the truth. Freedom of worship protects pastors, but freedom of religion outside these walls is what affects all of you. And the shame imposed by ourselves and others is a huge obstacle. I had several professors who were fairly open in their hostility to the faith, and I was far more likely to drop their class than engage them. I felt so small, I felt alone, and so I wanted to hide. And sometimes I engaged, but I did so in ways that were sloppy or rude. Uh, if I couldn't answer a challenge, I would feel shame for not being able to better defend the faith. Why didn't I have a better answer there? Uh, often I would let myself become offensive instead of the gospel. But either way, it was embarrassing. And while the threat of embarrassment is not the same as a death threat, any of you who have been humiliated for your faith has at least known the feeling of wanting to dig a hole and go die in it. The battle is real, and it is spiritual. Mockery may be the most effective weapon in Satan's arsenal. And if you doubt that, then consider that the church continues to grow wherever there is violent persecution. In China, the Middle East, the church thrives. And yet in the safe West, in America, church attendance is dropping at a pace to make your head spin. A church threatened with bombs has more power than one threatened with laughter. Ironic, ain't it? Luther believed that mockery was a good tool against Satan. Uh, he said, the best way to drive out the devil 
If he will not yield to texts of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. But perhaps that is why he uses the same tool so effectively against us. He knows it very well. He mocked Christ in the wilderness. He's lurking behind the shame I sometimes feel about Christ. I don't think I'm alone in my guilt on that point. The belittling of Christ in our culture may not look like persecution, yet I believe it does more harm than the sword. As the church thrives in places where physical suffering is worst, so it stagnates where the battle is emotional and mental. The end result of being embarrassed of your faith in Christ is doubt. Shame begins to erode your confidence in God's greatness and goodness. Every time you don't have a good answer, you begin to feel like God abandoned you when you needed him to get your back. You start to listen to the little doubts that get planted in your head. John the Baptist also knew doubt. For all his boldness, persecution finally took its toll on him. And I want to jump back a little bit into Matthew 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John has sacrificed everything in the service of setting the table for Christ, paving the way. And what John is asking is, was it worth it? Are you, Jesus, who you say you are? And John knows the answer. He's known since before he was born, and he leapt in the womb at the sound of Mary's voice. He knows who Jesus is, but in a season of doubt, he asks Jesus for a reminder, who are you? Please tell me again. Are you the one we've been waiting for? He's reflecting on his life and ministry, and he knows it's coming to an end, and he wants to know, can I be at peace with how I have served God? And Jesus answers. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Wow. Jesus is saying, Yes, I'm the one you were waiting for, and it was worth it. Anyone can doubt. We all do. But learn from John where to find peace when you doubt. Look to Christ. Look at his work. Know who he is, and know that he is the one we were waiting for. And then you will have peace. Though you are alienated, mocked, marginalized, hated, belittled, and despised, your peace is found in the identity of Christ. If he is who he says he is, then suffering for his name is no longer shameful, but the apostles came to see such suffering as an honor. In America today, I believe the worst we can face is ridicule and cultural alienation. The government could take away our tax-exempt status, but that's just money. Courts can prohibit Christmas trees and nativity sets and Ten Commandments displays, but those are just symbols. School prayer may never come back. Maybe that's for the best. I'm not sure we need our children learning to pray from unbelievers. Lawyers may financially destroy Christian businesses over the gay marriage issue or related things. And if this silences the church, then it's a danger. But handled rightly, faith will be stronger for the testing. 
But the church will survive these issues better than mockery and ridicule because man's good opinion is seductive. And we are both too proud and too timid to feel like raising it, risking it for the gospel. If the Great Commission means anything, it's that our mission is to make more disciples, and that means preaching sin, the cross, and repentance. And the devil knows it, and he knows that shame will be our biggest obstacle. He will exploit that every way he knows how. He'll convince you that your embarrassment of Christ is actually humility. He'll tell you that your arrogance is actually biblical courage. He is the father of lies, and his children are countless. Now, some will say, even if I get over my shame, people won't listen. People today have no interest in the gospel. Why beat people over the head with it? They're clearly not listening. Well, actually, Mark's account of this same story makes clear that people are listening, and I want to turn to him briefly. You don't have to go there unless you really are so inclined. Chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Herodias had a grudge against him, John, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Some, like Herodias, are incapable of accepting the gospel. It hits too close to home. The gospel judges her and her actions, and so she hates it. Yet others are like Herod. The gospel judges him too, but he's sort of intrigued anyway. He gladly listens. People like Herod may lock you up, but they are listening. They can't understand it, but they want to hear more. And still others will hear the gospel and repent, not because we're brilliant, God knows, but because the word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and the Holy Spirit can change parts before your very eyes. The message of Christ to John the Baptist and all those who suffer doubt and persecution of all types is, yes, I am the one you are waiting for, and you do not need to be ashamed. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We must be bold and we must be humble, but shame has no place. Jesus' biggest concern is not that John may die, but that he will come to be ashamed. And that is a powerful point to ponder. Jesus knew that shame and offense at him would create doubt and undermine our faith. John the Baptist learned that in prison. Peter learned that when he denied Jesus three times on Good Friday morning, and we still struggle today. But shame is a sign that we're making it about us and not about God and his work. But if we persevere, like John, to the end, Jesus will take notice. I want to go back to chapter 11 of Matthew again, briefly. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John may have been the greatest preacher in history. 
But Jesus says that the smallest in his kingdom is even greater. It's hard to be as marginalized as John was preaching in a desert. But if we can somehow get smaller and more humble than John, we'll be even bigger. You don't need to wear camel skin. And you don't need a massive following. You don't need to be Billy Graham. Just don't be ashamed of Christ or his cross. And he will not be ashamed of you. Jesus praised John and mourned him because he cares about the persecuted church. Take courage in that and stop thinking of yourself. We know more than John did because we know what was accomplished at Calvary and we know what happened on Easter morning. And as the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We need to rest in that power. And may it give the church in America and worldwide boldness and humility to preach the gospel faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful. We're thankful for the example of John. We're thankful that you encourage those who doubt. And Lord, we confess that we have been ashamed at times. I know I have. Lord, forgive me for making this about me and and my cleverness. Help us to look to your Son. Help us to look to the cross. Give us humility. Give us boldness, Lord, that can only come from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.